Okay, so I mentioned this to you just a second ago, but so that it's on the recording that goes to YouTube. Next Wednesday night, we're going to take a week off and then we'll come back uh, two weeks from today to uh, come uh, to begin to wind down this study in the book of Daniel. Tonight, we're going to be in chapter eight. And so as we uh, look at this chapter, we're going to um, see again the theme of resistance, but this time it's a theme that comes uh, as a result of enduring persecution. And um, tonight's uh, chapter is going to use a couple of animal imagery, um, but uh, it's primarily about a particular ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. So I'm going to be uh, sharing with you not only from chapter eight of Daniel, but a couple of interesting selections out of the book of first and second Maccabees, which also talks a lot about this uh, particular ruler and how he became a ruler and how he became powerful. So we are right here in chapter eight and now we are back to the Hebrew language. Um, we have been looking at a section that is Aramaic, but now we are coming back to Hebrew. And uh, this theme, apocalyptic, is the idea of the end time scenarios uh, for the Jewish people as they uh, continue to persevere the um, different empires that are ruling over them. So last week in chapter seven, we looked at a vision of four creatures um, and they all represented different empires in succession, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. And, and then we talked a little bit about a difference of interpretation, whether it's Rome that's in view or whether the last um, figure is that of Greece. So you'd have Babylon, Medes, Persians as number three and Greeks as number four. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at these two images that are the prominent um, a way of picturing what's going on in the world at the time of uh, the uh, of the people that are longing to be freed from this um, very uh, violent and wicked uh, ruler. Uh, we have been looking at um, the different refusals of the Jewish people uh, against Nebuchadnezzar, but now it is talking to kind of about the end time, and this is an interesting thing that happens. It mentions Belshazzar again, but it really is a setup in many respects to get to Antiochus, which is in the middle of the chapter. So the two images that's going to be a part of the vision that Daniel has is one of a ram and the other of a goat, and they are doing battle with each other, and uh, that will be kind of the centerpiece, and we'll try to sort through what it meant for the Jewish people. Here's a map that is an important one for the way chapter 8 begins. Uh, Daniel, even though he was in exile in Babylon. He, in this vision, sees himself being transported to uh, the Medo-Persian area, and in particular, the capital of Susa, where there's a citadel there. It's a fortified city, and through this city, there is a canal uh, called the Uli, 
U-L-I-A-I. And uh, it's there that he sees himself um, uh, seeing this picture of this ram and this goat. So as we head into this, let's take a look at verses one and two. It says here, in the third year of King Belshazzar reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. And that's the one he was uh, uh, in chapter seven. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Uli Canal. So in this uh, introduction, what's going on here is um, there's a geographical location that's found in the capital of Persia. And it is there he receives this vision alongside a river or canal. And you'll find that in different places in the scripture, it seems as though the riverbank is a common place where uh, these visions occurred. Probably the most famous one that you might be familiar with is the one in Ezekiel chapter one, verse one, where Ezekiel has a vision of uh, different, um, different wild pictures while he is alongside a river as well. So what's happening here, I think, might be instrumental for those that um, are in captivity. Along the riverbank, it seems, is a significant place of labor for those that are slaves. Uh, it's where they need to put forth a lot of effort. Uh, of course, uh, the river is kind of the lifeblood of these civilizations, but it takes a lot of human effort to maintain them. So as we see, even in the book of Exodus, uh, it's Moses that's taken out of the river as well. So this seems to be a theme that reoccurs in different places in the Bible. What's interesting here is that this particular one is, we are told that uh, it's during the reign of Bel Belshazzar. However, um, what some people are looking at is maybe what is happening here is setting Daniel again in the Babylonian Empire, but the account itself might have been written during the time of what's happening with Antiochus's rule. So the account reads kind of like recent news. And the story uh, that's being set in Babylon might be a way of uh, Daniel, this prominent prophet, giving a prediction and a hope to the people that their suffering is going to come to an end. So there's, there's some dating problems. We've seen this over and over in the book of Daniel. And there, here's another one as well. It seems as though what's taking place, according to First and Second Maccabees, as that I'll read for you in a little bit, is talking about something that they see happening in front of them. So be that as it may. But what we find here is the vision is of a ram and a goat that represent two empires. So let's read verses three through eight. I looked up. And there before me was a ram with two horns, 
standing beside the canal and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue it from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had, uh, I had been standing beside the canal and charged at it in a great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. So quite a wild vision here. It's uh, without much debate that uh, the, the symbolism of the goat and the ram are of the two kingdoms, the ram representing the Medes and the Persians and the goat representing the Greek empire. What we find is that there's, it's interesting with the ram, uh, we find three directions the west, the north, and the south. And it seems of little interest for whatever reason for the biblical writer uh, to talk about the other direction on the compass. What I think is happening here is uh, this particular um, invasion of the Medo-Persian Empire. So let's go back to this map here for a second. So um, here we're told that uh, you can see here, it charged toward the west, the north, and the south. If this territory of the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, it's not going east because it already controls that territory. So uh, the west, uh, the north, up in this area of Babylon, and the south uh, seems to have in mind the invasion of the Medo-Persian Empire against uh, the Babylonians. What we see taking place is they become prominent, they become powerful, and uh, it seems as though nothing is going to be able to stop this great empire. Uh, we're told here in verse 4, it did it as it pleased, and it became great. In other words, this becomes the dominant empire at the time. However, what happens is that there is this second creature. And the goat has, now this particular picture uh, is not really representative of four horns, but it just gives to you a feel for the idea of the animal that is going to suddenly um, come and conquer the Medo-Persian empire. And it says here in verse five that it conquered the whole earth without touching the ground. When Alexander the Great became uh, this powerful force at a very young age, he kind of sweeped through and conquered everything in his path. 
Uh, he will die at, at a young age, but what we find taking place is he's a real juggernaut. And what happens here is he comes in and he takes over uh, the ancient Near East. Uh, that would be the focus of uh, Daniel's book here. Now, what's interesting is when Alexander the Great uh, passes away, his kingdom is divided among four generals. And these generals, uh, if I put a second map up here, uh, take different uh, territories, areas uh, of Alexander's rule. And down here in Egypt, it's Ptolemy. Uh, Nicantor is over here to the east. Um, and here you see the city of Susa again. Um, and then what you find is up here, uh, you have uh, different empires as well, and not uh, different rulers as well, but um, Cassander and Lysimachus, these four, one, two, three, four, seem to be uh, the four prominent generals uh, that divide his kingdom. And as uh, they do so, they are all vying for power. And then the next thing we're going to see is as this goat becomes very great, verse 8, at the height of its power, one of the large horns is broken off, it says, and it's replaced with the four prominent horns, the four generals. And in the verse 9, then, it says, out of one of them, another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. So a solution uh, Seleucus ruler by the name of Antiochus suddenly gains great power, and that becomes the focus of the rest of the chapter here in chapter 8. So let's go to the next slide here. It's interesting how um, it's represented here. What we find is that Alexander the Great, um, as he dies and his kingdom is divided up, this individual, Antiochus IV, uh, called Epiphanes, the Great One, actually the Jews called him the Madman, what we find is that now what he does takes on kind of a cosmic um, force. And you'll notice in verse 9, it says, Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of heavens, and it threw some of the starry horse host down to the earth and trampled on them. Now, I think that is a very vivid, picturesque way of talking about uh, the Jewish people and what they're suffering under his hand. But notice the way it's being represented. This isn't just an earthly um, battle. It's a spiritual battle as well that's pictured as a starry host. And uh, and then verse 11, it says, it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. So there are all kinds of cultural things that are going on here. The use of stars as metaphorical imagery is um, found in other places as well. 
So sometimes there was actually the belief that stars were actually beings in pagan belief, like in 2 Kings 23, 5 and Isaiah 24. These stars are kind of personified as doing battle on behalf of the gods they represent. Even in Isaiah 14, Babylon is considered a fallen star as it attempts to raise uh, its uh, throne above the stars of heaven. So, yes, this is earthly battles, but it is also kind of a uh, cosmic battle that's going on because ultimately these rulers are fighting not just against uh, the uh, Jewish people, but against their God as well. And because of that, the situation, as you can see on the screen, is really grim. And what's going to happen is in verse 13, uh, the uh, author says, how long is this going to take place? How long? You know, how much more are we going to have to suffer? And then there's a date that is given here. It says it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, the two daily sacrifices, one in the morning, one in the evening, before the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. So that's a three and a half years uh, that this atrocity is happening to the Jewish people. It's interesting um, that Antiochus um, also has that heavenly connection. You see here that some of the coins that have been found in archaeology have a star over his head as well. So there's this connection to uh, not just earthly empires, but what seems to be um, the cosmic battle between God and empires that have gone awry. So um, let me stop there and see if you have some thoughts or some questions on what we've covered so far. So in verse 15 and following, Daniel's going to have an interpretation of what he has just seen. Daniel's scratching his head on this. You notice in verse 15, it says, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. And as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. Now, Gabriel is named here, and this is the first time an angel is named in the Bible. We'll find Michael is named later, but Gabriel is coming with an explanation of what they, uh, what Daniel has just seen in his vision. And it seems as though uh, this is um, the intersection of heaven versus earth. Again, this cosmic battle uh, telling us that there is an end to this that is coming. Now, when you see in verse 17, Understand the vision concerns the time of the end. The tempt, excuse me, the temptation is to think of the end of all time. This is really talking about the end of their suffering that they are going through. 
And I'm going to show you a video in a second uh, for you to understand how ruthless this man uh, Antiochus was to the Jewish people. And uh, they needed this assurance that at some point this persecution would come to an end. So we don't know uh, who is speaking uh, here to Gabriel. I heard a man's voice from Uli calling Gabriel. Tell this man the meaning of the vision. Help this guy out, right? And he came near to the place where I was standing. And Daniel is overwhelmed. He falls prostrate before uh, the angel. And he says, son of man, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. So here we find the writer, I think, is believing that God's going to intervene uh, soon. And if he intervenes soon, this horrid time will come to an end. Now, the interpretation begins in verse 18 of the vision of the ram and the goat that you saw earlier in the chapter. So let's see the explanation here. It says in verse 18, while he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. And he said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. There's that same theme. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. So let's stop there for a second. So the people as embodied in the person of Daniel are, are struggling and they, they're weak and they don't know how much more they can endure. And this visionary experience is to give Daniel and consequently the rest of the Jewish people strength to maintain their faith and their fidelity uh, and their identity in face of all this uh, international change that's taking place around them. There is a day of anger that um, is coming where God is going to come and intervene. And this day of anger is to uh, to basically bring these empires to an end. It seems as though this is where this chapter anticipates a long view. It's not really talking necessarily about a single point in time, but that over the span of time, God will certainly come to his people uh, and aid them and help them through their particular struggle. So having said that, I want to read for you what they are going through as you look at this guy, Antiochus, who becomes the focal point in verse 23. Take a look. It says, in the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce looking king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong but not by his own power. 
He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. And when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. So now the biblical author is saying that there was there's a, a time that's coming when his reign is going to come to an end. And what we find is this, I think, is because this section of Daniel is probably post-exilic. It's probably written through what is called an ex inventu prophecy. It's kind of an after-the-fact prophecy that summarizes what happens. And that's where uh, these passages in 1 Maccabees um, comes into place. So I'm going to read that for you. In 1 Maccabees chapter 1, again, this is an apocryphal book. Uh, it doesn't appear in Protestant Bibles, although it does uh, find its place in Catholic Bibles. In verse 29, it says in 1 Maccabees 1, two years later, the king sent to the cities of Judah a chief collector of tribute, and he came to Jerusalem with a large force. Now, this is talking about uh, Antiochus coming into the beautiful land, as it said earlier in Daniel 8. But listen to what it says as it syncs up with this idea here that he's a master of intrigue in verse 23. First Maccabees 1.30 says, deceitfully, he spoke peaceable words to them, and they believed him. But he suddenly fell upon the city dealt it a severe blow, and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, tore down its houses and uh, its surrounding walls. They took captive the women and children and seized the livestock. Then they fortified the city of David with a great strong wall and strong towers, and it became their citadel. They stationed there a sinful people, men who were renegades. These strengthened their position. They stored up arms and food, and collecting the spoils of Jerusalem, they stored them there and became a great menace, for the citadel became an ambush against the sanctuary, an evil adversary of Israel at all times. On every side of the sanctuary, they shed innocent blood. They even defiled the sanctuary. Because of them, the residents of Jerusalem fled. She became a dwelling of strangers. She became strange to her offspring, and her children forsook her. Her sanctuary became desolate like a desert. Her feasts were turned into mourning, her Sabbaths into a reproach, her honor into contempt. Her dishonor now grew as great as her glory, her exaltation was turned into mourning. That's pretty vivid description, isn't it, of what Antiochus and his forces did to the city of Jerusalem when they invaded. But it's not like they just came in and conquered them through weapons. Deceitfully, he spoke peaceable words to them, and they believed him. 
So he is an individual that captured the imagination of the Jewish people who want to be a free people. They want to uh, have their own self-rule. But he is an individual that basically takes over the entire city and then becomes a storage warehouse for all kinds of food and uh, arms and that type of thing uh, in the capital city of Jerusalem. So um, it what we find is that uh, two years after Antiochus IV plundered the temple, uh, a, a Seleucid force and he was Seleucid, was sent to occupy um, uh, Jerusalem. And that's where um, Second Maccabees comes into play. It ta talks about uh, how this occupying force, uh, how they reigned in the city for a period of time. So Second Maccabees carries on the story of what I just read for you out of First Maccabees, and what we find taking place in 2 Maccabees is something that uh, will fill in the gaps. It's pretty lengthy uh, as it talks about uh, the um, uh, desolation, uh, the abomination of desolation of the uh, Jewish temple, uh, where they, they despise the sanctuary, um, they neglect the sacrifices that are to take place there, um, and they they turn it into a wrestling arena. Second Maccabees tells us in chapter four uh, that this becomes like an Olympic stadium. So let me read this verse for you. It says um, that the priests were no longer intent upon their service at the altar, despising the sanctuary, neglecting the sacrifices. They hurried to take part in the unlawful proceedings in the wrestling arena after the signal for the discus throwing disdaining the honors prized by their ancestors and putting the highest value upon greek forms of prestige for this reason heavy disaster overtook them and the, those and those whose ways of living they admired and wished to uh, imitate completely became their enemies and punished them so it anticipates God's judgment upon them. It'll take a while to do that. So maybe the best way to do this is to see it in a video. So here's how the conflict of the Jews looked uh, in this short little video. So let's watch. After the death of Alexander the Great, a new Greek dynasty called the Seleucids seized control of the Middle East. first of the Seleucid kings were content to let Greek culture gradually transform their subjects into Greeks. But in 185 BC, a very unusual man ascended to the Seleucid throne. He was Antiochus IV, but he was known to his subjects as Antiochus the Madman. One of Antiochus' first decrees recorded in the book of Maccabees, demanded that all his subjects replace their ancestral traditions with Greek ones. The king issued a proclamation to his whole kingdom that all were to become a single people. 
each renouncing his particular custom. Many peoples of the region had already adopted the Greek way of life, but not the fat Jew. Now they would be faced with a choice, give up their faith or fight to defend it. Antiochus relied at first on a faction of Jews who had embraced all things Greek to increase their influence. He sold one such Jew, the most important job in Jerusalem, high priest of the temple. Jason usurped the high priesthood by giving Antiochus a promise of 360 talents of silver. As soon as he was in power, Jason set about converting his fellow countrymen to the Greek way of life. For a high priest in Jerusalem in the second century, the question is quite simple. Do I jump on the Greek bandwagon or not? Do I remain separate or do I throw my lot in with a social process that had taken over all of the Middle East at this time. We find high priests that were willing to take that extra step <laughs> and to throw their lot in with the lot of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. This would create a reaction, a violent reaction, because there were Jews who considered this to be nothing less than heresy. Circumcision was the ultimate symbol marking a man as a Jew. Under the new high priest, many temple priests began having cosmetic surgery to disguise their circumcision so they could take part naked in the Greek games. The Hellenizing process reached such a pitch that the priests ceased to show any interest in the services of the altar. They would hurry to take part as soon as the signal was given for the games. There were certain things about Greek culture and civilization that were totally unacceptable to the Jews. Among these, of course, was the religious concept of a multiplicity of gods. You cannot possibly imagine such a thing as being acceptable to Jews. Also, there were certain kinds of behavior. For example, the gymnasium with naked athletics. But really behind that isn't so much the nakedness as the virtual worship of the human body. These types of concepts, theological and we might say behavioral, were just totally unacceptable to most Jews. Okay, so... Um, I thought that short little video was uh, very insightful as to a lot of the pressures that were going on uh, with the Jewish population and the disregard of their customs, uh, their rituals, and their religion uh, by Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, this is all under the umbrella of a larger uh, force that really took over the ancient Near East, and that's called Hellenization, and where the Greek culture uh, was being forced upon people. Uh, Koine Greek was introduced as the trade language, uh, and that's what the New Testament is written in, is in Koine Greek. 
So um, you can see the uh, the desire of the Jewish people is that they maintain their uh, faith in Yahweh, that they maintain uh, the law as given by uh, Yahweh to Moses. And now this temple is being defiled. This temple is being used uh, for other things, storage of arms, storage of food, parts of the city um, becomes an arena for the Olympic Games, uh, the nakedness of the human body, as mentioned in the vi video. All these things are at play, and that's why Antiochus Epiphanes was so despised. And uh, that is what is at the heart of Daniel chapter 8. He comes in, he takes over, he's powerful, he desecrates the temple, and he's an individual that seems as though he can't be stopped. Well, he is stopped. And the way he is stopped is quite intriguing. So what we see taking place in the 25th verse of Daniel uh, is he is going to come to an end. Verse 25 says, um, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Now, that's interesting. Not by human power. What does that mean? All these other rulers were killed by human hands. I mean, they were conquered. So there were a number of theories that arose as to how Antiochus Epiphanes died. Um, various religious explanations have been given about how he died. Um, some say that um, he his death was attributed to uh, a his impiety and punishment um, because of his actions, uh, not giving a specific reason. But again, this is where uh, the Apocrypha helps us out. So in 2 Maccabees chapter 9, we're given a description of how Antiochus Epiphany uh, passes away. So in 2 uh, Maccabees chapter 9, verse 5, it says, and this he's talking about, uh, this chapter is talking about the last campaign of Antiochus Epiphanes. And it says in verse 5, the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him, Antiochus, with an incurable and invisible blow. As soon as he stopped speaking, he was seized with a pain in his bowels, for which there was no relief, and with sharp internal tortures, and that very justly, there's the commentary, and rightfully so, for he had tortured the bowels of others and many strange inflictions. Yet he did not in any way stop his insolence but was even filled with a more arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews and giving orders to drive even faster. And so it came about that he fell out of his chariot as he was rushing along, and the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. Thus he, who only a little while before had thought in his superhuman arrogance that he could command the waves of the sea and had imagined that he could weigh 
the high mountains in a balance, was brought down to earth and carried in the litter, making the power of God manifest to all. And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms, and while he was still living in anguish and pain, his flesh rotted away, and because of the stench, the whole army felt revulsion at his decay. Because of his intolerable stench, no one was able to carry the man who a little while before had thought that he could touch the stars of heaven. Then it was that, broken in spirit, he began to lose much of his arrogance and to come to his senses under the scourge of God, for he was tortured with pain every moment. And when he could endure, when he could not endure his own stench, he uttered these words, it is right to be subject to God. Mortals should not think that they are equal to God. So he becomes in many ways um, like Nebuchadnezzar, repentant at the end. Uh, but isn't that fascinating? Some of the how true some of this is in first and second Maccabees, who knows? But it tends to give commentary that helps us to understand Daniel chapter eight, where um, he is an individual that's getting his just due. In other words, God is going to bring justice to these poor people have been, who have been so mistreated. So there are two views here. that, um, if, And then the third one down here is a later rabbinical work, uh, the scroll of Antiochus, um, said that when his army had been defeated, he boarded a ship and fled to coastal cities. Um, and when he, uh, whenever he came, uh, wherever he went, basically, uh, the people rebelled and called him the fugitive, just like the old TV show, you know, <laughs> always on the run. So there you have several different options of how um, the Jewish people are freed from uh, this. The other part, though, that we often don't know much about as Gentiles is the whole Mac, um, Maccabean Revolution and the and Judas Maccabeus and the rebellion that was led against their oppressors. But I'm not sure we can be, I'm not sure we can be, you know, certain on any of these things, but it's interesting to look at some of the traditions. Do you have some thoughts, questions, or comments? So look at verses 26 and 27, and this is how the chapter concludes. It says, The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond my understanding. So Daniel is instructed to seal the vision up to, by keeping it to himself because it's not going to happen immediately. It's going to happen in the future. Um, Daniel uh, is to know that God is in control and that God is going to bring an end to these things, but we don't know when. And so this is a part of the faith that the book of Daniel is trying to, um, trying to 
create in the hearts and the minds of the people that are still looking for some type of miraculous intervention and uh, relief. So uh, again, this chapter has some elements to it that seems as though the writer knows what's happening around him, and yet he doesn't know how it's going to end up. And when we when we couple that with uh, first and second Maccabees, it kind of fills in some of the blanks a little bit. So do you have any thoughts or comments? I have one more slide that I want to show you uh, as in terms of kind of a theological assessment of this chapter. But um, do you have anything I can clarify? So. Um, the thrust of this chapter is really a part of what the book of Daniel as a whole, I think, has been emphasizing. God's not mocked. And those those rulers that shake a fist in the face of God will ulti ultimately meet their judgment. It's also to give hope to the people that uh, tyranny is going to be overthrown. So goodness is going to be vindicated and God's people are going to enter into the victory that only God can bring in the midst of these troubling days. So look here at the end of this slide. Antiochus meets his fate in due course, but it was that familiar historical manner experienced really that probably he met his fate at the hands of other enemies that came in and conquered. Because what we do know is even though Daniel 7 has two ways of interpreting what that last creature is in the vision of chapter 7, what we know historically is that Rome will conquer the Greek empire. And of course, Rome is still in power during the days of Jesus as well. So what happens here, I think, is ultimately the oppression of the Greek Empire upon the Jewish people is is going to meet its fate in 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 coming into conflict with the Roman Empire, and that's that brings you then into the New Testament. Any thoughts? Any questions? That's interesting. I don't think, you know, a lot of times you read through Daniel, you don't kind of get to this part. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I missed what you said there. Having read through Daniel, you know, several times, I, I often, you don't get to this part, you know, of, of, of the, uh, the history, I guess I would call it. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, you kind of have to go outside the Bible to complement yeah. the historical picture. Yeah. But hopefully there's a lot of things if you want to uh, if you want to learn more kind of about this era, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube of different mm -hmm. professors like the two that were on that uh, YouTube clip that I showed you. And what's really good is, as you saw, both those individuals were Jewish. So they are steeped even more than Christians are into an understanding of what happened historically. So, you know, if that's an interest to you, there's things mm -hmm. out there that you can watch or read as well. So um, I want to end up tonight uh, 
with a couple of kind of just kind of light um, humorous thoughts. So um, when you think about religion and a lot of the rituals uh, that are so common and accepted and taken for granted by the people that are within that system, um, it seems odd to someone who experiences it for the first time. So today we had a, a, a Russian Orthodox uh, funeral at, at the funeral home. Uh, this lady was Russian and uh, a priest from the West side drove over and, and did the funeral service. Now, what was strange about this whole thing to me is I pulled out the podium, got it ready for him. And when he comes in, he says, oh, I need the podium uh, to be turned and to be facing the casket. I've never seen that before. So he gets up and he's at the podium and he's speaking into the microphone, but he has his back to the people that are there for the funeral the whole time. And he has his uh, incense um, sensor that he is waving and he chants for 45 minutes in Russian and in English, uh, alternating between the two. And this whole time, uh, I mean, it's you can kind of see a light smoke in the whole room because this incense thing is being done the whole time of this chanting. And that seems so odd to me. You know, I have never seen a funeral like that. Why would you turn your back to those that come to for the funeral? But that was commonplace. That's the way he did it. So we go out to Knollwood Cemetery. And there, he again, he chants and sings the committal. And it's there that he has a prayer for all the different movements of that. He had a prayer when they got there. He had a prayer that was to be done uh, as, the, as the casket is being lowered into the ground. And then he asked for a bucket of dirt and he took shovels of, and put a dirt down on the casket as a way of finishing this committal. So I've seen a little bit of a little bit of dirt done by different pastors or priests. But I mean, these were shovelfuls as well. So here is something that I'm just telling you this as this was a brand new experience for me. Now I've been in ministry for 35 years and there's so much more out there that we are unaware of. And, but this was second nature to a small group of people, not a whole lot of people there, but all of them uh, had, uh, they all kind of lived in that Russian uh, area down in the Mayfield uh, uh, area of town, which is, had, has become highly Russian immigrants that have uh, settled there. And, and none of them um, could speak very 
English very well. So Greg, who I work with, he uh, he said um, um, this lady comes up to him and and she goes, Julie, I forget how he pronounced it. And he thought she he she was saying my name's uh, Julie. And what she was saying is uh, that she had a bag of jewelry that <laughs> to, <laughs> to go on uh, the the uh, necklace and the ring and all that type of thing. And he said it three times. Well, it's nice to meet you, Julie or Judy. I forget which one, which it is. So, I mean, it was just an out of character experience. And, and when you get around different traditions and different cultures, you can see that there's so much that you don't know and so much to learn. So one other little uh, incident I want to share with you tonight, because I, I think it's kind of funny, is um, a couple of weeks ago, Esty and I went to see my big fat Greek wedding <laughs> three. I don't know if any of you have seen the those movies. Yeah, the yeah, two of them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we love the characters in there. But it this is an illustration, I think, of Hellenization, this clip I want to show you, and uh, back in the day, that everything needed to revolve around Greek culture. Take, take a look at uh, this video, and then uh, I'll be done with my part for tonight. Let's watch. Can't hear it. Okay, hold on a second. All right. Let me see here. Okay, let's go back to the beginning of this. So you couldn't hear the other clip either? No, we heard that one. You did? Okay. Yeah. All right. Any word, and I Can you hear that now? Yeah. Okay. start at the beginning. Any word, and I show you how the root of that word is Greek. Okay? How about arachnophobia? Arachno, that comes from the Greek word for spider. And phobia is a phobia, is mean fear. So fear of spider, there you go. <laughs> I always got a kick out of that. Um, so I like the Windex aspect. What's that? The Windex aspect. Yeah, yeah that's good too. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> but again, everything's related to his own culture, that type of thing. So uh, that that's a pretty good summarization, I think, of of what the Greeks tried to do. They tried to make the world uh, kind of one culture with their uh, imposing of uh, Greek culture in in the power of their uh, empire. So, anyways, all right. Any other thoughts tonight that you have before we finish up? 
All right. Well, no Bible study next Wednesday. We'll we'll be back at it two weeks from tonight, and we'll get in to chapter nine. And that becomes that section of Daniel that talks about the 70 weeks. And then that's often tied into um, end time scenarios, a lot of the left behind um, type of um, uh, novels and stuff uh, is based upon using uh, the book of Daniel. So we'll, we'll, we'll tackle that the next time. So, all right. Well, um, have a good trip, uh, Bud and Shelly. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll did everybody. you enjoy the, did you enjoy the movie? Yeah, oh, yeah. we did. It was yeah. very, um, educational. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, very good. All right, guys. All right. Have a good night. Good night. All right, you too. Good night. Good night. Bye. Bye. Feel better, Rusty. Thank you.